I want to add my welcome and greeting as well to those of our guests who are with us this morning for the first time. It is a joy and a pleasure to have you here with us and trust that this time will be a time in which you draw closer to God. We sang a song there in the bulletin called Ancient Words. It says in the chorus, these ancient words are ever true, changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. That's what we're going to do now this morning is to open our Bibles. So if you would do that, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you didn't come with a Bible this morning, there are Bibles available for you to use in the pew racks in front of you. You'll take one of those black Bibles out and open it up to page 1127. You'll arrive at Romans chapter 3. We have been involved in a year-long journey in the book of Romans. It began in January of this year. And at the pace we are going, uh, we'll be here three more years to finish this book. But that's okay because I'm not in a rush uh, to get through this. We are taking our time. We are going verse by verse, even clause by clause, and sometimes word by word as we go through this book of Romans. This is probably one of the most significant of the books of the New Testament if we could prioritize such things. Significant in the sense that it, it uh, provides for us the most systematic and the most detailed, the most thoughtful and the most logical presentation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that can be found anywhere in the New Testament. And so it is well worth our time to slowly go through this and allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to impact our hearts. And so that's what we have been doing and that's what we will continue to do uh, today, this morning. If you are new with us this morning as a guest, we are. this is the second part of something that began last week. So you are jumping a little bit into uh, Act 2, but I'll do my best to catch you up quickly so that we can go forward together. I was reading this past week an article entitled The Most Violent Century of Human History. In that article, the author Steve Cornell made the following observations. He noted that the 20th century was an amazing century in terms of the advancements in the area of science, in the areas of medicine, and in the area of technology, and certainly uh, those uh, amongst us who, uh, who have lived many, many decades that take them back towards the beginning of the 20th century uh, can readily identify with the amazing progress that has been made in the last hundred years. It is truly astounding. But in spite of the tremendous advances that we have uh, enjoyed the 20th century is also known for being the bloodiest century in human history. It is, without a doubt, the bloodiest and most violent century in the history of man. Just to review for you why the author says that, in two world wars, approximately 100 million lives were snuffed out. That's not just soldiers, that's civilians too. In that hundred year period of time, it's estimated that approximately 170 million citizens were murdered by their own governments around the world. In this country alone, in the 20th century, 37 million unborn babies were snuffed out before they had the privilege of coming into the world. And that, beloved, that trend has not changed all that much. The total now is 48 million innocent lives. School shootings, terrorism, riots, drive-by shootings. It is a violent, violent place. Humanity has almost an unlimited capacity for cruelty 
and bloodshed. But that's not all. That's not all. We are awash in other vices as well. Corporate greed is a scandal. Companies like Enron and where the senior executives who further their own personal wealth bankrupt thousands. Where accounting firms that were pillars of integrity in the business world are complicit in the fleecing of people. Crooked politicians are a regular occurrence. They lie through their teeth buying votes by mortgaging the future of our children and our grandchildren. Unethical corporations that knowingly sell shoddy and substandard products, even hazardous products, the quest for corporate profit. Corrupt sports figures and officials who will cheat and steal in order to win at any cost. Speaking of cheating, according to an ABC News website, there was an article there that I read that said, according to a 2002 confidential survey taken of 12,000 high school students, 74%, that is three out of four, admit to cheating on an examination at least once in the past year. We are corrupt. We are broken. By all measures that you would like to apply, humanity is both broken and defective. Where does it come from? Where does all the wickedness come from? How do you account for evil in the world? What is the answer? The answer is given to us here, the text before us in Romans chapter 3. Let me read beginning in verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The Poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What an indictment. What a detailed, ugly exposition of the heart of humanity. The Apostle here, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, beloved, is talking about me. He's talking about you. He is revealing in all of its ugliness the reality of who we really are on the inside. We're pretty good about putting up fronts, facades, masks to try to deceive others. But this is who we really are. And it's not a pretty picture. It's not fun to look at yourself like this. There are many, many other things that you and I both would rather do. But until we get a good, hard, honest look into the heart of man, we will not ever understand why the Son of God came and died. There is no other explanation but the wickedness of humanity. 
And so the Apostle Paul lays it out here for us. Last time, as we said, he's kind of summarizing his argument here. He has for the last three chapters, one, two and three of the book of Romans, been hammering away at the depravity of man, the wickedness of man. He has pointed it out from every different angle. He has brought numerous illustrations to bear to support and strengthen this point. And now as he closes out his argument like a prosecuting attorney, he turns to the Inspire or the inspired word of God, the, the authoritative, inerrant word from the creator and closes out the argument with a series here of quotations from the Old Testament. One after another, in staccato, rapid fire, he just strings them together to prove that there is none righteous, not even one. We noted again last time the word none appears three times in verses 10 and 11. The word uh, and then the fourth time in verse 12 and the word all is used in verse 9 and in verse 12. That is to to make sure that we understand he's saying that everybody falls into this basket. There is nobody outside of it. All are within the pit of wickedness. All live in the cesspool of sin. Nobody is righteous. Before God. And so he calls, as he calls humanity to account here, he, he completes his evaluation with 14 different expressions of the depravity of man. And he lists them here for us. And he does this to show us how bad off we really are. So that we will then flee to the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope, because it is our only hope. Last time we looked at six of those expressions of depravity. I'll just review them for you quickly. In verse 10, Paul says that we are uh, unrighteous. That is, we do not live up to the standard or the will or the character of God. God's standard is perfection. God's character is holiness. God's will is that we would love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the totality of our being. And no one lives up to that. We are unrighteous. Beyond that, we are ignorant, verse 11. None understands, he says. We are rebellious, the end of verse 11. That is, none seeks after God. We are willful, verse 12. That is, all have turned aside. We have, we have left the path of righteousness. We are rancid, verse 12. That is, we have become useless. The word there describing rotting fruit. Spoiled milk or rancid meat. We are immoral. Verse 12, there is none who does good. No, not even one. It seemed like that would be bad enough, wouldn't it? That would seem like that kind of rounds it out for us. Is it necessary, Paul, that we know more? Yes, it is necessary we know more. And so he goes on, beginning in verse 13, and I will go on with him. And I'm going to give you the audition of the final eight expressions of our depravity here. And they begin in verse 13. And so I've given you a handout. You can follow along on that handout if you like. But the seventh expression of our depravity is here in verse 13, and that is that we are corrupt. We are corrupt. Their throat is an open grave. The apostle says, Jesus himself said that the mouth speaks forth that which resides in the heart. When we open our mouth, whatever comes out is that which is inside of us. Matthew 15, verse 19. The apostle James says that it is the tongue that defiles the whole body. It ruins us. James 3, verse 6. And so here in verse 13, the psalmist, this is a. A quote from Psalm 5, the psalmist says that the throat of humanity, the throat of man is like an open grave that sends forth its putrid and disease containing vapors. It's like walking along through a seminary and they forgot to close up the grave and inside lies a putrefying corpse. The apostle says that is the state of our heart and it and it comes out of our throat like the vapors would rise from a grave. This is true to human experience, is it not? 
Is it not true that out of people's throats come the most vile and disgusting thoughts? To illustrate, we have to look no further than the conversations that occur when men and women gather together either at a beauty salon or a football game. It isn't long in these gatherings before the dirty jokes begin to flow. Isn't that true? It isn't long before they inevitably lead into the dehumanizing discussions of the opposite sex. Women talking about men, men talking about women, and reducing the beauty of a person made in the image of God to some sort of object of debased sexual lust and fantasy. That is the human condition. That is the occurrence when people get together. That is the putridness coming up out of the wicked heart of man. We are corrupt. And our corrupt conversations arise like a stench out of an open grave to the nostrils of God. Followers of Jesus Christ, this is not to be true of us. Amen? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3 and following warns us that we are not to partake of such things. He says, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which is not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. The heart of man is corrupt, and his throat is like an open grave with a stench pouring out of it. Paul says next that we are deceitful. By nature, that we are deceitful. Verse 13 again, with their tongues they keep deceiving. You see that? Keep deceiving. That is, that it is an ongoing process of deception. We are liars by nature, the Bible says. And you know this to be true from your own experience. No one taught you how to lie. That first lie just came naturally to you the moment it came off of your lips. As parents, you know this to be true. You never taught your children to lie. Yet at a very young age, they'd look you right in the eye, their shirt covered in cookie crumbs, and tell you, no, I didn't take the cookie. They're just not yet practiced at it. To sweep the crumbs away before they lie, like you and I. Lying comes naturally to me. It comes naturally to you. We don't have to practice. It is natural to us and it is a constant pull in your life. The temptation to lie is always right at hand. We lie because we think it's going to help us escape certain consequences of our sin. And so we will lie. We will lie because we think that it will make people regard us more highly, think more highly of us if we lie about who we are. And so we lie. We lie because we believe that it will help us attain something or someone that we want. And so we lie. Beloved lies roll off our tongues more often than we care to admit. We've even got a name for it, don't we? We call them little white lies, right? Because somehow that makes us feel a little better. How about when the phone rings and you don't want to talk to the person on the other end of the phone? And so you say, tell them I'm not home. Liar. Liar. You're a liar. 
How about when we flatter someone? Flattery is a wonderful thing. That's telling somebody to their face what you would never tell them behind their back. Okay? That's telling somebody something that's not true in order to gain something from them. To deceive them. To manipulate them. Then we have slander. Slander is saying behind somebody's back what you won't say in front of their face. Right? We've got the two. Liars. How about this one? I came across it this week. Ladies, I'm not picking on you specifically, but... When a husband asks his wife, what's wrong? And she says, nothing. Okay? Ladies, we know you're lying. <laughs> we know you're lying. fact of the matter is, folks, that's who we are by nature. Deceitful people. You know, we are such liars that we will even lie to ourselves. Imagine that. We are such deceitful, lying people, we'll even lie to ourselves. We'll not only lie to everybody else, we'll lie to ourselves. We'll lie and tell ourselves that God is not really serious about His holiness. And that our sin is really not all that bad. We'll lie and tell ourselves we're basically a good person. And that, of course, God will welcome me to heaven. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. That's a lie. We'll even lie and tell ourselves that God is lying when He says that the wages of sin is death and that none will escape His wrath unless they have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're liars. Deceitful. And if that were not enough, number nine, we're dangerous. We are dangerous. The poison of asps is under their lips. The asp is a deadly poisonous snake of that part of the world. It's venom stored in a bag just under the lips. When it strains its fangs and hits you, it's, the glands are, are contracted and the venom is squirted into the wound. The bite of an asp was fatal, usually within a matter of a few moments. Human speech acts in a similar way. Have you ever experienced someone who turns on you and slays you with their tongue? In just a moment, without notice, out of nowhere, where did that come from? There was no obvious provocation, and yet they have sunk their fangs deep in me. Their bite is every bit as deadly as a poisonous snake. Evil in our hearts, stored up like venom in a sack behind our lips. Just waiting for someone to squirt them full of it. How about that old children's rhyme? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. By the way, that is a colossal lie. Okay, That's your mother lying to you when she told you that. Okay, Your bones will heal. The names that people have called you, the destruction they have wrought upon you with their tongue sometimes goes with you for a lifetime. You know, it's amazing. Humanity alone possesses the gift of speech. It is a good gift given by God. And yet we use that gift to insult God to hurt and to destroy others made in His image through our hateful speech, through the poison of our lips. We are corrupt. We are deceitful. We are dangerous. Number ten, we are hostile. We are hostile. 
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, verse 14. Paul's not describing here what a man does as much as what a man is. Okay? This is all about what we are, not so much about what we do. What we do is merely a manifestation of who and what we are. Prophet Isaiah says, can a leopard change his spots? Answer, no, no. Can we act differently than who we are without the power of the indwelling Spirit of God? No, no. This statement here that we are, our mouths full of cursing and bitterness is the idea that it lies within our character to harbor ill will toward people and to desire their downfall or their destruction. That's why I say that we are hostile. That we desire the downfall and the destruction of others. It comes naturally to us. For example, when someone cuts you off on the freeway in a car and you say something like, I hope that jerk gets in an accident. Or you might say, uh, I hope they get what's coming to them. How about you? Do you hope you get what's coming to you? We are a hostile people. We are a hostile people. Through the years, I've had opportunity to visit many, many people in the hospital. And I've observed people in times of great misery and pain. One of the things I've observed is that given the right provocation, given the weakness of body due to injury or illness, that all kinds of filth can spew out of a person's mouth. Even those who claim to follow Jesus Christ. Given the proper provocation, it can happen. People whom you would never expect it of. Because the Scripture says that it's there waiting to happen. It's like an egg waiting to be hatched. It's there. It's in my heart and it is in yours. We're a hostile, hostile people. Number 11. We're violent. We are violent. Verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Paul's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 59 and verse 7. What he's noting here, the reason he brings this forward is because of the recognition of how quickly violence can break out. It is the natural instinct of man to kill. Just cross him and watch his passions become inflamed. Folks, anger in your heart is murder waiting to happen. Those passions that build up within you are the same thing that bursts forth when someone actually takes a life. Give it sufficient provocation. Your resentment, your jealousy, your greed will bring forth violence and murder. Sometimes for the most trivial offenses. We are by nature fighters. We are by nature not peacemakers, fighters. Apostle James says, James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? 
You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Let me ask you a question. What do you think it would take to convince you to murder your neighbor? What would it take right now to convince you to murder your neighbor? Maybe not as much provocation as you would like to think. This summer I was given a book to read that chilled my soul. The name of the book is Neighbors. It's written by a historian, Jan Gross. It details the 1941 murder of 1,600 Jews. Now, in 1941, there were many, many Jews being murdered. What makes this book so chilling is that these 1,600 Jews were murdered by their neighbors. By their neighbors. In a city, a small farming village in Poland. And as the historian details the account of an eight-hour killing spree, you get a peek into the heart of man that is frightening. Just frightening. With the permission and encouragement of the Nazis who controlled Poland in that time, the non-Jewish residents of that small farming community were given eight hours to do with their Jewish neighbors whatever they pleased. And they were given the additional incentive of when the Jews were gone, they could have their homes and their farms, their property. This is a farming community where people live for a long time. This is not some big city where people are you know, coming and going and nobody knows anybody else. So we're all strangers. This is a community where you grow up together generation upon generation. Your children play together. And that one day, the evil in the heart of man broke loose. Because it is difficult to individually murder that many people in sixteen or in eight hours. Ultimately, the the city leaders and those associated with them rounded up approximately fifteen hundred Jewish men, women, and children, herded them into a barn put guards at the door so they could not escape, and then burned the barn to the ground, killing every single one of them. About a handful of eyewitnesses escaped. Not the barn, but the pogrom. What would it take to convince you to murder your neighbor? If you could have his house, would that do it? Don't answer too quickly. The capacity for evil in the heart of man is huge. Huge. Paul goes on to say that we are destructive. Verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The idea here is that wherever man goes, he, he drags along destruction and misery with him. Again, human experience gives us plenty of illustrations. Beloved, we live with a thin veneer of civilization that is temporarily holding back the violence and destruction of the human heart. The reason I know that it's a thin veneer is because all that has to happen is some sort of, of, of uh, catastrophe, a, a tidal wave, an earthquake, a tornado, or whatever. Some kind of a riot erupts. The violence spins out of control. 
Wherever you look in the world and you see something like that happen where the, where the government is temporarily disrupted. You see the violence, misery, the human condition just pour forth. Like lava pouring out of a volcano. Ants out of an anthill. Back in Genesis, way back in the annals of time, lost to all but God who has recorded it for us here. He says in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 3, that prior to the formation of human government and God giving to that human government the authority to wield the penalty of capital punishment, that by the way is Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. That human violence before the advent of government, before God's advent of government, was so great that God destroyed the whole world. Genesis 6, verse 13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh, that is humanity, has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. It is only government that keeps the lid on. Turn on your television, open your newspaper, look around. The illustrations of this abound. When government is disrupted, the violence and destructiveness of man just spews out. By the way, during the Great tribulation of the last seven years prior to the return of Jesus Christ to establish His kingdom in righteousness and to punish the evildoers. The Bible says that it will be a time these last days of unprecedented violence and destruction. The church, having been called home to glory to be with Christ, will lose its restraining influence upon the earth. Human government will be ruptured and the thin veneer of civilization will be stripped away and the world will nearly kill itself. In fact, the Scripture says that if God had not called the time short, even the elect would not survive. Destruction and misery are in our paths. Thirteen. In the path of peace, they have not known. Verse 17. We are restless. We are restless. Apart from God, we are children of strife. The Bible says that we are rebels at war with God. Romans 5, verse 10. While we were enemies of God. We are rebels at war with God. The consequence of that is, by the way, that we are at war with our fellow man. And we are at war with ourselves. We are a restless people, children of strife. Everywhere we turn. Every year, there's a vast amount of money and time invested in psychotherapy. As people try to cope with the inner turmoil of their lives caused by the fact that they are alienated from their Creator. And when they are cut off from the source of life, their life is nothing but strife and misery, restlessness. The Scripture says, Isaiah 57, verse 20, that the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and muck. Go down to the beach after a storm, right? And you walk around and you see all the crud that's been tossed up on the beach. The prophet says that that is what the wicked is like. Constantly churning and, and drawing up muck, junk. But we can't have peace in this world. We can have peace. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. How can we have peace? The answer is we must be made right with our Creator. That is the source of our restlessness. It is the cure and the source of our peace. Jesus offered Himself on that cross as a sacrifice. His death was a sacrifice whereby He bridged the gap between wicked man and holy God. For those who by faith embrace what Christ has done, that is that they believe He died in their place for them, they will know peace. Romans 5 again, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the first fruit of salvation. That is, we are at peace with our Creator. And once we are at peace with Him, we can now pursue peace with our fellow man and peace within our own soul. Until that point, restlessness will mark your life. You would think that would be enough, but it's not. He gives us one more in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is perhaps the most damning of all. We are arrogant. We are arrogant. You would think that with all of our problems, with all of our crud, that we would be anything but arrogant, but indeed that's exactly what we are. That which should humble us, that which should drive us to the cross of Christ, that which should cause us to call out and beg with our Creator for mercy is, becomes the source of our own arrogance. The Scriptures say that the fear of God or the reverence of God, if you will, is the essence of godliness. The essence of godliness. To fear God is to mean that God is the very center of our thoughts. That our life is characterized by a conscious dependence upon Him. That is what it means to fear God. The book of Acts. Those Gentiles who had attached themselves by faith to the God of Israel are called God-fearers. God-fearers. Conversely, the absence of the fear of God is the true character of Godlessness. It means God is excluded from the center of our thoughts and decisions. In fact, He's not even part of the calculation at all. It's, it's as if He doesn't even exist. We go through life in our own arrogance as if there is no God at all. This arrogance runs counter, though, beloved. It runs counter to both the clear revelation of Scripture and to reason itself. The Scriptures reveal that there is only one true God and it give us His requirements as our Creator. He has made us in His image so that we could have a relationship with Him. But in our sin and our folly, we turn away from Him and we try to live life without Him. Again, the prophet Isaiah in 53 and verse 6 says, All we like sheep have what? Gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. If you're trying to live your life this morning without God, if He's not part of your calculations at all, let me ask you a question. How are you doing? How are things working out for you? How's life without God? Beloved, Life without God runs counter to His revelation. It runs counter to reason as well. 
You know, we live in a large and varied world. Isn't that true? Everywhere we look, it manifests the complexities of intelligent design. Everywhere we look. Millions of bits of data encoded on a strand of DNA. All the information necessary for that cell to properly function. Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? How about when you go out at night and look up into the sky and you see the vastness of the universe and its stellar bodies? The lights in the sky that are that are so regulated that we go to bed at night and the weatherman tells us what time the sun's going to come up tomorrow morning, doesn't he? And you live your life by it. There's no question in your mind that it's going to happen. There's no randomness there. In fact, God says in Genesis 1 that they were given to regulate the seasons. Where did all that stuff come from? Where does it all come from? You really think it's a, a process of random chance? Is that, do you really, really think that? That the complexities of the microscope to the vastness of the telescope is all just a product of some random chance? Bunch of junk that somehow got together over time and that's you? Is that really what you believe? Goo to you? God said, it is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretch out the heavens with my hands and I ordain all their host. Isaiah 45 and verse 12. Ten verses later, God says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, Come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. Come to me. He says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Beloved, we are bent and twisted people. Bent and twisted by the sin that indwells us, the very fiber of our beings. When God drops a plumb line next to us, that is the Scriptures, and He measures us against it, no one is truly straight. No one is upright of heart. That's why every single person needs a Savior. They need one who is upright of heart. They need one who will hold up in the judgment. One who is righteous. One who will stand in for them as their substitute. Why did Jesus die? He died in the place of people just like So that in the wonderful glory and love of God, all of the crud and all of the wickedness of your heart could be punished on Him. 
And all of the uprightness, all of the perfections, all of the beauties and glories of the Son of God could be credited to your account. You are not perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. You do not love the Lord your God with the totality of your being. You are not holy as God is holy. But Jesus Christ is all of that. And He offers it to you. Will you receive it by faith? We're going to sing here a moment. And as we sing, I'm going to just find my way over here by this lighted cross. I will wait there for anyone who would like to come and to talk. If there are things on your mind, don't walk out of here with it unresolved. Let me ask you a question. If you were to die tonight, and you stand before your Creator, and God says to you, why should I allow you into heaven? What would be your answer? What would be your answer? If you cannot answer that question with certainty, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. Because the Bible gives us the answer. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for a clear and honest look at ourselves. Our Father, it is a sobering picture we see. It's not what we like to put forth. It's not the facade that we carry around so skillfully. But Lord God, it's the truth. And when we pause for a moment to consider who we really are, we know that it is the truth. We know, our Father, that we are lost. We know that we deserve judgment and condemnation in the lake of fire. We know that we will not stand in the judgment. And we know in our heads that You have made a provision through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray Your Spirit to work even now and translate it from the head to the heart. That You would move in a mighty way even now in our midst and sweep many to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, do a mighty work here. For Your name's sake, for Your glory, we pray. Amen.